This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Here's the third and last of three episodes following the fact and the fiction of a legend behind legends. We're going to begin with the consequences of Peterborough, but this will quickly move to bigger and more important events involving Harroward's no longer underground war against the mighty conqueror. Today's episode, episode 92, is entitled The Siege of Ely. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. So now the plot thickens as the histories and legends urge us to take a slightly deeper look into the context of Harroward's sack of Peterborough. It's worth sorting out quickly what we already know before continuing. I chose not to include these things before as I just didn't think it fit into the flow of the narrative in the last episode, but then again I thought, why not just give it all to you and let you do with him what you will? I promise we'll pick up with the aftermath of the sack of Peterborough, but first, there's an interesting story that may or may not fit into the overall legend or not. It occurred around 1068 to 1069, and it's found in both the Hyde Chronicles and the Gesta Herowardi, so it really seems to be true, most notably for our purposes here on the podcast, given what we learned in the last episode, it may fit neatly into a specific moment we've already mentioned. Here's another version of that story and how Harroward might have fit into it. As soon as Harroward returned and found many of his properties stolen in 1067, he began to grumble to his neighbors who also grumbled their own grumblings. As the underground English movement grew around him, news from Flanders arrived. Remember, Harroward returned with Gilbert of Ghent, who was bringing William much-needed reinforcements just a year or so earlier. His former employer, Robert the Frisian, apparently felt he deserved the title of count over his nephew and was calling for reinforcements of his own. Now, in the last episode, I told the story from the perspective that Harroward chose to stay in England and, you know, fight the good fight. But there is another version of this tale that I'd like to offer. Again, you make of it what you will. It says that Harroward escaped England and made his way to Flanders around the same time that the Flemish Civil War kicked off. So, say, again, that 1068 to 1069 is mentioned earlier. Now, that's the part that is questionable. What apparently caused him to return to Flanders in this retelling is what we're pretty sure is the truth. It was also in 1068 that Hereward is said to have taken a certain revenge on local Normans in and around Lincolnshire. See, when Hereward first arrived back home, he already knew that when his father had died before the Norman invasion, the family lands went to Hereward's brother. But when he walked up to his family's main estate, it wasn't just raided and empty. His brother's head was on a spike outside the house. As I said in the last episode, personal vendetta indeed. This little detail just adds another dimension to the whole story. However, more than that, I think it goes to serve as a model for many, many families during the conquest. Harroward was hardly the only one in such a situation. Now, knowing Harroward, it comes as no surprise that he was driven to vengeance, thus the grumbling to his neighbors. He apparently infiltrated a large feast 
held by local Normans, and he murdered at least 15 in cold blood before anyone knew what had happened. Word got out rather quickly that Harroward was at fault. Okay, this much seems to be true as it's corroborated by at least two sources that were written independently of, of the other. I'm referring to the Hyde Chronicle and Gesta Harrowardi. And this is why it's so difficult to sift the fact and fiction of stories like this. See, according to the Gesta Harrowardi only, this next part of the Hyde Chronicle does not include it, calling it into question. So according to the Gesta, Harroward is said to have headed down to Peterborough Abbey to be knighted by his uncle, Abbot Brand. Much of this should sound familiar. Easy hole to poke in that addition to the story, though, is to point out that though the Normans had certainly brought many, many of their customs to English shores, castles and all land are technically the kings, who then issue subordinates to maintain chunks of it, for instance, a quick and loose definition of feudalism, really. We have to remember that the French practice of knighthood had not been accepted and formalized in England in the 1060s. In fact, it would take another decade for it to really be seen widespread there, this practice of knighthood. So why would a proud Saxon priest knight another proud Saxon landholder when both men were public enemies of everything Norman? Just doesn't make any sense. So why would the Gesta include such a historical inaccuracy? Well, my supposition is that having been copied from Anglo-Saxon to Latin sometime after the turn of the 12th century, the Gesta may have been uh, adding to the original in an effort to make the by then Anglo-Norman people see Harroward as an equal among William's knights, a worthy foe to the invaders, if you will. Well, due to this mini-massacre of feasting Normans, knighthood or not, the other questionable part of this snippet of the narrative is that Harroward actually did return to Flanders for a short spell. The Gesta, and no one else, mind you, states that Harroward just wanted to let things cool off before returning. But that most certainly would have required him to be fighting for Robert the Frisian. So when he finally returned, or came back to the surface, whatever, some months later, he realized he might have returned or come back to the surface too soon. Because one of William's more loyal and trusted men, William de Warren, who would one day much later, under King William II Rufus, become the first Earl of Surrey, well, he had a brother who might have been at the feast where Harroward went on his vengeful rampage. This seems to be corroborated by both the Hyde Chronicle and the Gesta, making it somewhat more reliable. See, the younger brother, Frederick de Warren, called out Harroward publicly for the slangs, saying to anyone willing to listen that he would love to put Harroward's head on a spike right next to his brother's. Harroward, of course, didn't think that a very kind thing to say, so a confrontation occurred resulting in young Frederick's death. William de Warren caught up to a fleeing Harroward but was knocked from his mount with an arrow from Harroward's expert bow. As we know, William de Warren would survive, though this left Harroward a chance to escape. So why bring this up? 
Well, I suppose it shows that Hereward wasn't just ruffling King William's feathers in the East. Rather, he was firmly establishing himself as a thorn in the side of just about any Norman or Norman loyalist in his area. I mean, Hereward was like the honey badger of the Norman conquest of England because he also didn't put up with the weaknesses of their neighbors in light of a new king. Just didn't put up with it. So did Hereward ever return to Flanders? I'm inclined to say no. Did Hereward kill one Warren brother and wound and humiliate the other? I'm inclined to say he pretty sure did. This little episode, real or not, is what also added context to Hereward's sack of Peterborough. Another piece of context worth mentioning is where the Danes had set up shop for the winter of 1069-1070, while William was conducting his, you know, infamous harrying up north. See, Hereward, it's said, traveled to meet the Danish king, Swain Estrison, at their main camp on the Isle of Ely. After Hereward raided Peterborough Abbey, it was Ely that Hereward returned to in order to make good on his offer to Swain Estrison. Ely seems to be the epicenter of the next major event in the kingdom. However, Hereward wasn't expecting to leave Peterborough so soon. Immediately, we hear of William dispatching another Norman abbot to Peterborough to help reclaim control. But this wasn't just any old holy man. Morris quotes William of Malmesbury, who describes this abbot Tyrold acting, quote, more like a knight than an abbot, end quote. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicles even bothers to mention the man as a, quote-unquote, very ferocious man. And fashion even comes into play here because the way warlike men distinguished themselves at the time from others less warlike, like, say, an abbot or a monk who showed their humility and peacefulness by being clean-shaven and tonsured, was that warlike men, like kings and knights and mercenaries, they all sported the mustache at the time, like our good friend, Count Eustache of Boulogne, who seems to stick his nose in every argument and fight pertaining to England since the early 1050s. And here's this Norman abbot, this replacement for the deposed abbot of Peterborough, which was Hereward's uncle, by the way, Abbot Brand, sporting this mustache of a warrior. Make no mistake, William, by choosing Tyrold, he was sending a crystal clear message that, if necessary, he would fill the monasteries and abbeys to the brim throughout England with men not afraid to call upon the wrath of God to spill blood in the name of the king. Abbot Turold had upwards of more than 150 French knights on horseback accompanying him to Peterborough, and he wasn't there to pray over the souls of the slain, at least not initially. Prayers could wait until after he retook the abbey and punish those responsible for the recent sack on it. And it was the mere mention of Abbot Turold's name that forced Hereward's men to flee Peterborough with their loot. That's impressive for a priest. So Hereward packs up quickly and hightails it northeast to Ely to meet up with Swain Estrison, only to find that the Danes were packing up too. Hereward was no doubt deflated at the news of the Danes once again abandoning the English cause, but in truth, as Morris states, quote, Danish dreams of conquest had probably died many weeks earlier, end quote. Why, though? Their king had reached English shores. 
They had their guy, their leader with them, finally. And they had a massive amount of native support in overthrowing William. Hell, King Swain Esterson could have become England's king in no time at all, given the kingdom-wide hatred of the Normans. Why did they all leave? There's a pretty good clue given in Orderic Vitalis' records. Do you remember, you know, that the thing William did in the North earlier that year? Yeah, you know, the slaughter of untold numbers of humans and cattle and all the rest. The emptying of whole villages and towns. The bones piled up for miles and miles on the roads leading out of Yorkshire. The blackened, charred, lifeless fields. Yeah, see, Swain Esterson arrived, expecting his forces to have held on for the winter, and just stayed out of the way until he arrived. He came upon a once stout force of fierce Danish Vikings, experiencing a level of suffering that took the wind out of his sails, to say the very least. It wasn't just the English who suffered the harrying of the North. That Danish army suffered pretty heavy costs as well. Or Derek writes, quote, some perished through shipwreck. The rest sustained life with vile pottage. Princes, earls, and bishops being no better off than the common soldiers. End quote. Winter storms in the North Sea were no joking matters that certainly played into things, but the devastation left in the wake of the herring was such that even the Danes were living in extremely dire straits. Living off the land for the Danes was exactly like living off the land for the people of Yorkshire. That is a near impossibility due to William's actions there. When Swain Esterson saw his men, he had no choice but to abandon his hopes for England. He must have surmised that while there was simply no possible way he could compete with William, given the army currently at his disposal. The Danes had been weakened along with the rest of Northumbria. It's disappointing to admit, but given everything we've heard so far about the harrying of the North, how can one not come to this conclusion that, horrifying as it was, William strategically nailed it? The harrying served to deter any remaining threats in the spring of 1070, whether he realized what he was really doing or not. Even entertaining the idea that William just threw a massive fit, because we know he was well known for, this, for his terrible temper, then one of his unintended consequences of the harrying was to dismantle any potential plans for the random arrival of a Danish king sniffing around for a weakness to exploit. I mean, the harrying of the North, from a Norman perspective of conquering England, might have been one of the biggest strategic wins of the entire invasion. What can I say? It, 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 was, just, it was just effective, and profoundly so, albeit horrifying and morally indefensible. It's a funny thing, war, isn't it? So nudging our narrative forward a little bit, what happened to the loot that Hereward had brought to Swain Esterson? Well, of course, Hereward kept a bit, bit of it himself in order to make his payments to his loyal warriors, but the majority of it, per his offer, made it, made it into Danish hands. And with the Danish packing up and heading for their boats, we can safely assume that Peterborough's goodies made it into Danish boats. Unfortunately, as we know, whenever you so much as think about making your way through the North Sea, there's nothing but doom and gloom to, be, to expect. Many of Swain Esterson's boats were lost on the way back, along with a considerable amount of all that loot that the Danes had acquired while they were in England, not just Peterborough. 
From there, Peterborough's treasures were passed from family to family and town to town over the ensuing centuries and are scarcely able to be found today. But what of the treasure that Hereward kept for, him, for himself and his men? And speaking of Hereward, because at this point, screw the Danes, right? With Abbot Turold locking down Peterborough Abbey and William beelining it to Ely, how did Hereward escape, I suppose, to, find, to fight another day? Well, Peter Rex, in his book, The English Resistance, paraphrases the Gesta Herowardi, saying, quote, Hereward was warned in a vision by an old man of terrible aspect, carrying a large key, an obvious reference to St. Peter, who ordered him to restore its treasures to Peterborough. He promises to do so, and his reward is to be guided through the marshes by a white dog, which turns out to be a wolf, so, so avoiding his enemies. His soldiers' lances are lit by what the common folk call fairy lights, that is, the marsh gas effect called will-o'-the-wisp, end quote. Yeah, so a little of that uh, good old classic English folkloric ghost story sprinkled into Hereward's story. That's fun. I'm telling you, this, this whole narrative seems to have it all in the final analysis. There is word that a priest named Ethelwald accompanied the Danes back along with several of his monks. This lowly priest was able, over the ensuing years, to regain much of the treasure from Danish houses. However, the vast majority, as I said, is lost to history. He sent it back to the church, who kept it until Abbot Turold forced his way there and took Peterborough's loot back. From here, the story eases into a narrative thread we discussed several episodes back when speaking of York. Do you remember the name William Mallet or Malay? The man who took over York for a spell after the foolish death of Richard Fitzrichard and before William Fitzosborne? Well, Mallet also became the sheriff of Yorkshire during this time as well, directly named by the king. William Mallet served as king well for a couple years, and when he was called upon to enter the fens and marshes to attack or retrieve Hereward and Ely, well, this is when we lose track of him. Historians believe this was when M William Mallet died, when King William ordered him into the dense, dangerous swamp sur surrounding Ely. Rex describes Ely like this, quote, Ely at this time was almost literally an island, surrounded on all sides either by deep rivers or even by deeper morasses. The monks said it was seven miles by four miles in extent, but modern measures give 12 by 10. Medieval measures of distances are almost always underestimated, end quote. He says there was, in the 11th century, but one usable entry onto the island. It was the point at the village of Aldrith. Rex writes, quote, The isle was not cut off from the sea, but access to it elsewhere was prevented by almost stagnant mares and marshes. End quote. There was no causeway at the time. But as of a king's writ in 1082, one had already been built. And the causeway, at least its earliest incarnation, was actually ordered during this campaign of William's. When William launched his campaign against Hereward from Cambridge, his report spoke of the need for a path to cross the swamps. Foot soldiers would not be useful to slow the bottlenecking a causeway provides. William knew this by experience, and I'm sitting here a thousand years later remembering the, the near defeat 
of Olaf Tryggvason by Elderman Britnoth back in 991. Just some parallel there. William wanted his cavalry, and the swamp was simply too soft for horses. So, still, what William wants, William gets. With the causeway created and the Danes long gone, Hereward prepared for a battle. Now, Hereward wasn't the only big name holed up in Ely, mind you. See, hunkering down and using Ely Abbey as a base of operations, Hereward was joined by any and all local thanes, freemen, and any remaining Danish mercenaries who felt that there were still chances for greatness and wealth to be earned there in England. In addition to his forces, Bishop Ethelwine of Durham, Seward Barn, and Earl Morcar of Northumbria, Earl Morcar, <laughs> injected some serious muscle into Hereward's forces. Rex also includes a number of other names that make it into the records, such as Tertiatal of Herringworth, King William's most powerful thane in the Eastern Danelaw, mind you. Besides that, some sources say that Tertiatal, being of established Danish stock, was also, get this, the son of the one and only Thorkel the Tall, King, Newt, King Knut's most trusted Viking leader. Earl Morcar had numerous notable kinsmen present at Ely Abbey in 1070 as well. Seward of Malden, just to the south, was present. The Sheriff of Cambridgeshire threw in his lot with Hereward and his rebels too. The great-grandson of Earl Edwin, named Turbenitus, each man mentioned also brought their own band or contingent of loyalists ready to fight, mind you. Rex puts this number at upwards of 3,000 at Ely Abbey as King William approached. The siege of Ely began with the usual things. William steps up a blockade uh, for any possible retreat by sea, though that was pretty unlikely, even given the proximity to the shore. The Isle of Ely was surrounded by incredibly difficult-to-navigate swamps, like I said before. Now, this was at least two or three sides. The remaining sides were landward, and of course, William's land forces set up shop right on the edges of the most difficult-to-tread terrain. William's causeway was complete by the time he was able to dismount and survey the little island just off the coast. This causeway was made by inflating cowhides with air and then, using ropes and other strong vines, tying sticks and timber on top of these makeshift balloons. The Liber Eliensis, which is the, the book of Ely, by the way, in Ely Abbey, says it was a sheepskin, uh, the she it was full of sheepskin bladders and sand, but no matter. Either way, when William ordered his knights across the causeway, the whole thing collapsed. The swamp did the rest, and William was helpless to just watch handfuls of men and horses sink beneath the marshy surface. The author of the Liber Eliensis also reported that when he wrote the account itself well into the 12th century, one could still survey the scene and come upon weapons and armor from the accident. In fact, he reported the local tradition saying it wasn't just dozens of men and horses that perished. It was upwards of several hundreds of men. But we know, again, how medieval estimations are. Angry, embarrassed, and horrified, William retreated to more solid ground and ordered ramparts built to keep an eye on the swamp and the island from a bit of altitude. He also stationed men at the entrance to the causeway to make sure Hereward didn't try anything like, well, <laughs> attack or escape. 
There is said to have one Norman knight, been one Norman knight, make it across before the collapse. His name was Deda, and he was immediately taken prisoner because you know that Hereward and his men were watching the whole debacle unfold and probably even allowing some heckling and laughter to make it across to William's ears. That's what I would imagine anyway. Now, keep in mind we're talking about a rather large stretch of land. As much as William tried with the ramparts and earthworks, there was just no patrolling the entire area effectively. And it seems that Hereward had the same idea. See, Hereward, for, the, for reasons unknown, led an attack on the nearby village of Burwell, which was set ablaze. In another offensive move from Hereward, we see him attack one of the lesser manned ramparts, resulting in a sally by around, of around ten Normans losing their lives, save one. This man was named Richard, and he was the son of Viscount uh, Osbert, Rex recounts, quote, he was spared because of his bravery, end quote. It's at this point that the Gesta Herowardi divulges more Saxon names who were fighting alongside Hereward, my favorite of these being Acer the Hard. That just sounds awesome. Now, all the while, while Hereward was locked in at Ely, it's worth keeping in mind that for reasons already explained on the Patreon episode, Scotland and Normandy weren't too far from William's mind. It seems that William was only half in on Ely at the beginning. Because, as Rex states, quote, In a council of war, he asserted that it was impossible to leave these men in his rear at Ely when he needed to move against the Scots and then return home. The king said he, that he wished to make peace with the islanders, that is the island of Ely, because, quote, we cannot prevail against them, end quote, and then wrap up the quote from Rex. It seems that popular to lore, Hereward masterfully chose the perfect landscape to make a stand against the mighty king. Unfortunately for Hereward, it seems William's barons convinced him otherwise because, quote, the men of the isle had invaded many of their estates, end quote. Rex suggests there might have been far more raids and attacks on surrounding estates than what actually made it into the records. Given what we know of records from the 11th century, this might very easily be the case. In any case, William shockingly extended an olive branch to Hereward in this moment. A tenuous peace took hold of the area surrounding Eli, but neither man moved a muscle. And now this is where it gets interesting. William being, well, William, couldn't stand the standstill. Scotland, Normandy, they were all beckoning for his attention, and frankly, they both seemed like far larger threats then this Saxon upstart rebel holed up in a, on a lonely island surrounded by a swamp. A Lincolnshire nobleman named Ivo Talibois suggested an alternative. She's listed in the core records of Hereward's story as, quote-unquote, an old woman. But in very, various other records, she is listed as both a pythoness and a witch. Apparently, he knew of some local woman who was known as a witch, and he believed she could help their situation. William took the bait and had the woman called to him immediately. And while they were retrieving her, he ordered his ramparts and earthworks to be fully manned and ships to renew more vigorous patrols, showing that, though he was willing to give the magical side of things a try, he was also not fully trusting of the plan. Here is a moment when the fantastic drips into the tale. Hereward disguises himself once again, 
to infiltrate the Norman camps to figure out what William was up to. As a potter, as a fisherman, says Rex, Hereward was able to put together the plan involving the witch. Whether it was him, which is the exactly which is exactly the type of cunning the 12th and 13th century storytellers loved about their heroes, or his possible spy network that informed him, either way it seems Hereward did learn of the plan, and Hereward drew his own plans. See, like I said, this is a rather large area to manage for both Hereward and William, so Hereward schemed a way to build his own earthworks from which to both defend and attack. He drew the support of nearly every fisherman in the area who brought supplies and lumber and earth to the isle, and Hereward ordered his men to immediately get to work. Historians suggest that Belsar's Hill near Willingham is probably the place Hereward chose to build his base of operations due to its pre-existing Iron Age fort, which the Romans mentioned the existence of when even they arrived. So this is a pretty old place. Now at this point in the middle 11th century, it was probably defined mounds with stones jutting out, but it served as a high ground from which to set up shop. This could be considered, half-heartedly at best, the first Saxon castle built on the island. Again, not really, but it's described by Rex as a castellum, so there's that. William, on the other hand, employed locals to construct catapults. Yeah, catapults. It seems there was a period of intense fortification between the two sides, almost building this confrontation up to be, I don't know, apocalyptic maybe. Don't misunderstand, William's siege of Ely hit the records for a reason. It was an important point in the conquest as a whole, but there is quite a bit of attention given to its buildup. I promise, it's not just me drawing it out for dramatic purposes. It took William's men eight days to get the old woman and bring her to him. And in the intervening days, as I said, the fortifying commenced in a flurry of activity. And William also began to bombard Hereward's men who were trying to build their own earthworks. On the eighth day, the old woman arrived and took center stage. Rex writes, quote, The witch was brought along and placed on top of one of the towers. She now began to curse the defenders, denouncing destruction and utter, uttering charms, according to the Gesta Herowardi, end quote of Rex's. And when words and magic don't work, well, I suppose you resort to what every college-aged boy does in, his, in such situations. You turn around, drop trow, and moon them. Rex continues the story, quote, the only effect was to provoke the defenders who sallied forth through the fen and set fire to the reeds and briars surrounding the Norman position, using oil and pitch to make sure the damp sedge burned well and set alight the king's wooden towers. Fire was Hereward's favorite weapon, used also in Peterborough and in Burwell. The Normans were driven back by the flames and dense smoke, leaving the witch, hysterical with fear and shrieking imprecations, stranded on her tower. Overcome by the smoke, she fell headfirst and broke her neck. William was once again left to contemplate the results of his poor planning. End quote. <laughs> and if this shows anything, maybe this little snippet from history is a reminder that William believe it or not, was actually human. 
I know, right? I urge you not to downplay that statement, though. William had made a reputation of himself as a formidable foe to anyone in his way. He defeated the mighty Harold Godwinson. No small feat. He'd bested Geoffrey the Hammer Martel and the French king on numerous occasions. That was back when he was younger. And he'd already overcome his own powerful Norman barons before the age of 20 in order to establish his superiority within his own duchy. On the island, beyond King Harold, he'd push back the rebellions of Edric the Wild and his mighty Welsh allies, the Silvatici. Not to mention uprisings from London to Exeter and York to Dover, as well as defeated the last gasps of the House of Godwin when, when Harold's boys came back with Irish mercenaries. Everyone knew exactly who William was and what he was capable of at this point. And here was Harold and his Saxon rebels, including an earl no less, making a last stand with their backs against the sea. And they were, for all intents and purposes, dare I say, at this point, winning. Yeah. Now, it's worth mentioning how the witch could quite possibly be another embellishment. If you remember, this sort of taunting has happened to William before. Twice, actually. Once down in the county of Maine, when the Angevin and Maine soldiers taunted William for his, mo his mother's low birth, and another in Exeter, when they farted in his general direction. In both cases, it's also worth remembering. Well, it didn't end very well for the folks doing the taunting, many of them losing eyes and ears for their jibes. Here, the table seemed turned with William's witch doing the taunting, resulting in a broken neck. Did the stories travel with William wherever he went? Most assuredly. And was the author of the Gusta Harawardi influenced by them? Quite possibly. Something else he was influenced by, this, this writer of the Gesta Harawardi. It was a story by Virgil. Yes, the ancient Roman Virgil. And his story called the Aeneid. Yeah, the thousand-year-old story, or thereabouts, about the founding of Rome. He even mentioned the text, drawing comparisons to William's siege on Harewards Ely. Rex mentions that the chronicler also tried to swing the siege as lasting a full seven years. What other famous siege lasted seven years? Psst, it's the Trojan War. If, in fact, it had lasted seven years, it would have needed to start in 1068 and end in 1075 the date that the author intended on it ending. Why 1075? Because, spoiler alert, that would tie Harroward's Rebellion in directly with the more famous Revolt of the Earls, which we will get to shortly. So sticking to the history and pushing aside some of the small questionable details, the rest of the story pretty, goes pretty quickly from here. With Harroward successfully defending his base on the Isle of Ely, William does what William does best. William gets innovative. He's facing a swamp, and it's not like it's a football pitch distance between him and Harroward. It's not even like it's a, a half mile. This is a couple miles of winding paths between the two, and William doesn't like to sit still, and he likes being embarrassed even less. So instead of inflating cowhides, he decides to take a more solid approach. 
When he learns of Harroward leading yet another raiding party toward the village of Aldrith, William sets his soldiers on a fast-paced plan. He pulls all the boats in the area not already in Harroward's payroll, and he connects them together for a firmer bridge. They're a lot more than you would think. Each piece of solid ground they get to, William hurries his army across. When everyone's across, he orders the bridge to come around them and build it again, going further toward Ely. On and on, this bridge went. Now, it's said that he had close to a thousand knights with him, and they were, only, they were only French knights, meaning William needed his most trusted by his side. In my estimation, that's a clear message that William was taking Harroward as seriously as anything else so far. But it wasn't just a hurried march across the fens, a hurry-up-and-wait kind of thing. No, William and his men were forced to suffer the almost continuous onslaught of Saxon might. In immediate response, William ordered several of his boats to abandon the bridge project and become floating catapults. Yeah, William had floating catapults. And these catapults added the much-needed cover fire for Normans as they fought skirmish after skirmish after skirmish after skirmish, slowly crossing this vast marsh. Between Aldrith and Ely, Rex writes, villages and towns like Cottenham, Impington, Willingham, Sutton, Haddenham, Witcham, Witchford, Wilburton, Little Downham, and Little Thetford all saw various degrees of fighting. Now, it was through this intense fighting, floating catapults, and sheer stubbornness that William was able to inch by swampy, deadly inch, finally step foot on the soggy edges of the Isle of Ely. When he made it to the church in Ely, he quickly sent out messages to his noble opponents to, to see him immediately or risk never having the opportunity to get back in his good graces. Bishop Ethelwine was the first to respond because, well, he was the spiritual guide on Hereward's side. William sent the bishop to a monastery and he then died just a few months later. The Thane, Seward Barn, very powerful, wealthy Thane, by the way, who was a part of so many of the rebellious behaviors from East Anglia to Yorkshire since the invasion began, well, Seward Barn escaped. History actually somewhat supports the lore behind his escape, which alluded to him appearing in the ranks of none other than the Varangian Guard. Yeah, that Varangian Guard. And it brings up the single reason why I chose to dive into the Norman conquest of England prior to jumping back into Robert Giscard's actions after taking the reins in southern Italy. See, it's imperative to know about the makeup of the Varangian Guard in the late 11th century. Sure, over a century, for over a century, the Varangian Guard was, well, overwhelmingly Viking, whether it was the Rus or the Swedes or even an exiled Norse prince. But after around 1070 or so, there was a mass exodus of Anglo-Saxon men from England. They were considered enemies of the crown of England, had suffered the stripping of their abilities to own land and wealth, and honestly, they could very well have lost their families due to the heavy fighting and devastating famines across the island over the previous four years. It's quite possible that Seward Barn 
also, having been stripped of his wealth and land, saw his situation for what it was, hopeless. Please don't forget this detail of the Varangian Guard swelling under the influx of dislocated Saxon men as it will be as it will add a new dimension to the fighting between Robert Guiscard and the Byzantines, because, well, don't forget, Guiscard was himself Norman. You see the circular nature happening now. Now, besides Hereward, there was one more nobleman who we need to hear about, Earl Morcar. He surrendered and was immediately imprisoned for the remainder of William's life, which would be a good 16 years or so. He was then released as one of William's last orders, but, spoiler alert, King William II Rufus would turn right around and imprison Morcar again, out of spite, and Morcar would die in a Norman dungeon sometime in the early 1090s. So that is the end of Earl Morcar. And as awesome as Hereward's story began and continued for three episodes, I wish I had more of a bang to go out with here. I mean, it was during William's first moments on the island that Hereward and hundreds of men escaped. Some of the men are rumored to have blended right back into their communities, no doubt hiding their involvement with Hereward. And everyone else, including Hereward himself, just disappeared. Local lore had much to say, that's for sure, but nothing as far as hard evidence supports any of the tales spun after 1070 and the Siege of Ely. Did Hereward actually die defending Ely? Did he escape to, say, Scotland, Norway, or Denmark? Three kingdoms that were no friends of William's, that's for sure. Or, most intriguing to me, did Hereward join Seward Barn and head to Constantinople. And that's how Hereward's story ends, actually. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Hereward the Wake's legacy is one riddled with folklore, but he was a real man. He traveled as far as Flanders, we know, and he returned to see his lands ravaged and his brother's head on a pole in his front yard. He bore witness to a once cohesive kingdom under King Edward II, and now, well, it was William's kingdom now, and things were very, very different. It was Hereward who, as far as I can tell, was the last true Saxon folk hero of the Norman conquest of England. Sure, Edric the Wild was still out there, but as big as his waves were out west, even garnering support from across the dike from the Welsh, he never quite had the same legendary staying power, I suppose. Hereward the Wake. His name became synonymous with the proud pre-conquest English, and something in that name tugged upon the heartstrings of an already deeply proud and deeply ancient kingdom. It tugged upon those heartstrings for a full century or more until a new folk hero emerged under the treacherous and oppressive reign of King John. In fact, the proof that Hereward's name was still freely spoken in the kingdom comes from the late 12th century, roughly one century after Hereward's disappearance, that the Wach family did what historians believe to be some twisting of family histories post-conquest. It was the descendants of a minor Lincolnshire nobleman, Hugh Wach, who had married Emma Fitzgilbert, 
and gained what amounted to stolen lands afforded to the Fitzgilbert family by King William I. This English-Norman union brought the Wack family notoriety and wealth and estates, and, as I said, in the late 1100s they stretched their story to include Hereward in their family tree. Over the centuries, Hereward was claimed by the Wack family, which is why he is known as Hereward the Wake. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest this to be true, especially since Hereward's many other tales never once mentioned the Wack surname. It was a family on the rise who attempted to capitalize on the fame of one man's name, a man who tried desperately to fight against Norman aggression and just fell short. At the end of the day, the only singular truth we're left with is that William had not only pushed into the swamps of eastern England, but he had conquered them as well. He was also in sole possession of Ely, which he laid the groundwork for Ely to be a hub of Norman and then Anglo-Norman activity for centuries to come, albeit a somewhat minor one. Its access to the North Sea by the way of the River Ouse was also a big selling point to keep Ely on William's radar. Hereward's actions were impressive, but I think if they proved anything, it was that a devast as devastating as William was and could be, the English were fighters until the end. So, Hereward's gone, and nothing much has changed, really, except that William's confidence was certainly rattled considerably for a time. Where does our story go from here? It seems that things kind of chill out, at least in the records, for a few years anyway. Sure, plenty was happening, but the next major event ramps up and climaxes in 1075, when even William's loyal followers take issue with his reign in England. We'll set up some context on the next episode, but we will very quickly get to the year 1075. I just can't wait to tell you about it all. 